All right, good morning. Uh, good morning. I want to say uh, thank you for being here. Uh, and thank you for joining us online. For those of you who are joining us online, I have to believe it's meaningful for us to gather. Uh, I've read in scripture where it says, whenever people gather in my name, I'm there. I have to believe that there's something for us to hear uh, this morning, uh, something God has for us. Uh, so uh, it is encouraging to be able to be a cloud of witness for one another, uh, lift our voices together, listen in to the sounds of heaven together. Uh, so thank you for tuning in and thank you for being here. Um, there, can be no, there can be no greater joy than, than hearing from God, uh, than, than feeling and, and experiencing the presence of God. There can be no greater joy. You can see, actually, there can be no greater break heart, uh, heartbreak in, in the scriptures than, than feeling like you can't sense the presence of God. I think of uh, the moments following Cain and Abel when, when Abel has lost his life at the hands of his brother Cain. And, 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 and God says, Cain, you must go east from here. And, and you, you have to go away from my presence. And Cain says, my punishment is more than I can bear. There, there could be no greater joy than the presence of God, and there could be no greater heartbreak than, than believing you've been deprived of it. Listening and hearing from God is, is a joy. Uh, for, for my wife and I, one of the ways that we've often uh, heard the voice of God is, is actually through travel, being a little bit lost not being quite so sure whether to turn left or, or to turn right. Or, or in the case of this story, whether to stand or to kneel. Uh, I can remember this time where my wife and I had the joy of traveling and, and hearing often from God during this trip through the beauty of the world that he created. But also in this particular moment, we were in Florence in Italy. Uh, and we were in the Duomo. And it was a Sunday morning. And we thought, wow. What a beautiful chance. We can go to the Duomo and participate in Mass. How beautiful. How many hundreds of years have the faithful ones attended Mass and gone to the Duomo and gathered from uh, all corners of the town and from the area and done so. Uh, when we got there, we noted that they were only allowing people in who were there for worship, um, which makes perfect sense. They were... Uh, trying to protect the integrity of the mass, of, of the service. And you can imagine any number of tourists might have scheduled for themselves that morning a trip to the Duomo to gaze up at the cathedral ceilings and maybe to climb the stairs and whatever else. Um, but it was uh, initially quite encouraging to me to think that they were going to have to wait. Um, they were going to have to wait. So, so Jess and I, we went in, and we didn't know what we were doing <laughs> at all. Uh, it was a mass, which is already a little bit outside of our comfort zone and our rhythm. Uh, we had attended mass before, but this was different for us. When do we kneel? When do we stand? It, it was really just look left and look right and trust the neighbors know what they're doing. Uh, but, of course, the mass was in a different language and, um, uh, you know, so forth and so on. It was a wonderful kind of lost that we were. Uh, it, it meant we had to pay so much attention. Paying attention considered attention. But I have to tell you, my heart broke a little bit. As the mass wore on, it became clear that not everybody had been quite so honest with the doorman. Um, tourists had 
found their way into, um, which I, I'm, I guess I'm glad on one hand that they were there to, to, to have the mass wash over them, whether they were paying considered attention or not. But I remember kneeling, because everyone else had knelt, and I remember looking over to my left and seeing tourists just completely ignoring the fact that there was a mass going on, and they were taking photographs of the ceiling, and they actually moved up towards the priest while the priest was blessing the sacrament. And I remember feeling quite heartbroken. And it wasn't even just a few. I have to tell you, it was dozens of people. I was heartbroken on a few levels. I think one, I thought, man, they're missing out. On another level, I thought, <clears throat> how could it have come to this? How can we have gotten to the point where this place is merely a stop on the tourist agenda? This might seem strange, but I actually thought of Nietzsche in that moment. You know the one, Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche has some things to say, um, often quite brutish and direct. And one of the more brutish things that he says is, very famously, God is dead. And what he says then is, uh, at the end of this passage, of this lunatic who is rushing through the marketplaces of Europe with his lantern in hand, screaming, God is dead. The passage ends this way, and it's why Nietzsche came to my mind. Nietzsche says this, what, after all, are these churches now if they are not the tombs and the sepulchers of God? <clears throat> and I thought, that's exactly what these people believe. That this, that this cathedral is merely the tomb of God. That, that, that God is dead and now merely a tourist destination. Not a place to dwell. Not a place to, to wait just a little bit longer to hear from the God of the universe, but just a stop along the way. And you know, I can't actually blame them that much. If I think about what has happened in those, those halls, in that Duomo, I think about the, the paterfamilias of, of Florence going to war against one another, spilling blood in the cathedral in the name of power. I think about Machiavelli walking that very floor that I had knelt on and how he had declared that the ends will justify the means and that fear is more powerful than love. It's, it's no wonder, actually, that these people came to believe that this was merely a tourist stop, that this was merely the tomb of God. For, for, for many of them, the last gasp had been the wars of the 20th century where people in the name of God had torn each other apart, uh, had used the name of God for their own agendas. So I think while I was kneeling there, it made some sense to me, even if it was breaking my heart, that they would just wander through the mass and take pictures and go on their way. But Nietzsche's not the only person I thought of. I might say, Nietzsche's not the only person I heard from. I, I heard from Jesus. He reminded me of some of his faithful followers, those in contrast to the Machiavellis and the paterfamilias of Florence. People like Bonhoeffer, actually. Um, when there were people who were using the Lord's name in vain, using it as a tool, Bonhoeffer was whispering it on the wind, that there was still life 
in the presence of God. And Bonhoeffer saw the church do exactly what Machiavelli had asked it to do. Bonhoeffer in Germany saw the church bend its knee to Hitler in the name of power, in the name of fear. And Bonhoeffer spoke these words, a couple of phrases. One, he said, what is needed now is for the church to be the church. We could say that every day. What is needed now is for the church to be the church. And we must pay close attention to what Christ has envisioned for us and what it will mean to be the church. But Bonhoeffer also said this. He said the restoration of the church, and what he meant was the church remade after having given itself over to Babylon in, in the years leading up to World War II, especially in Germany, his home country. He said the restoration of the church will surely come only from a new type of monasticism, a life lived in accordance with the Sermon on the Mount and the discipleship of Christ. I think it is time to gather people together to do this. I also think it is time to gather people together to do this, to, to have a new type of monasticism, one that listens to the Sermon on the Mount and is discipled in the actions of Christ and gathers together to do it. I think it's time. I think it's time for a willful listening, and I think it's time for a joyful obedience. The sort of thing that might have been lost on the teachers of the law, the ones that encountered Jesus, failed to listen. And some of those who heard failed to respond by allowing their hearts to be discipled in a, will, a willful and joyful obedience. We, we've been looking at the book of Mark, and we can see this. We can see people who are encountering Jesus and are responding in a way that breaks my heart. I'm stopped by this one passage that we've actually just arrived at. This passage has Jesus serving the poor. It's in Mark chapter 3. And he's, he's serving the poor so uh, faithfully that he doesn't even have time to eat, is what it says. And in the midst of this, in the midst of Jesus putting on display what it will mean for the church to be the church, we see two reactions to Jesus that hold him at arm's length. Two reactions to Jesus that turn a deaf ear to what he has to say and a blind eye to what he is doing. When Jesus is healing in the synagogue, when, when Jesus is healing in the streets and gathering with the poor and, and the marginalized, it's the teachers of the law who say this, and even his family says this in Mark chapter 3, verse 20 through 22. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. What a sentence. They went to take charge of him. How often has the church been guilty of trying to take charge of Jesus, rather than the other way around? Think of Peter trying to write Jesus into his story rather than letting Jesus write him into his. A lot of pronouns there, but I mean we need to give way to the story of Jesus. Not take charge of him. 
not assert power over the one who holds the universe in his hands. And here's what they said about their son and their brother, Jesus. They said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. It's not lost on me. It ought not to be lost on us that this is uh, two of the three reactions that are available to us when Jesus comes around. I think of C.S. Lewis who says, really, there's three. You can say, this Jesus, he's a lunatic claiming to be the son of God. Or we could say, this Jesus, he's a liar. He's, he's coming to deceive. Or we could say, this Jesus, he's Lord. I, I'm heartbroken over the way that these teachers of the law and even Jesus' own family were missing out on the truth that he is Lord and had instead given in to the idea that he was deceiving them or that he was out of his mind. And so Jesus responds in a way that I think I need to absorb. He responds in a way that I, I need to listen to. He actually responds in a way that actually causes a bit of tension in my heart. Here's, here's what Jesus says at the end of basically saying, actually, I'm not crazy. And actually, no, I'm not working with me. I'm not here to deceive. Here's what he says when he's told that his mother and brothers have arrived. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived to take charge of him. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him. They told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him, and he said, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will of my brother, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Those words stopped me in my tracks. They cause tension. Here's a little bit of tension. There's a commandment I've heard. One must honor your mother and your father. Here's Jesus' mother, whom he has honored beautifully in other places. I think about uh, John chapter 2 and the, and the miracle at the wedding of Cana. And, and Jesus says, not time yet, woman. <laughs> Playfully, I believe. And, and Mary says, these people are going to be embarrassed. They're going to be marginalized. And Jesus says, okay. He honors his mother in that moment. I think about the time when Jesus is on the cross, and he says to his mother, here's your son, John. And John, this is your mother. Take care of her. In, in his death throes, he's honoring his mother. So, so there's tension here for me. I look at this, and I say, wait, wait a second. What, this doesn't seem very honoring. Right? We could look, right? We could look at Deuteronomy chapter 5, one of the two places that the Ten Commandments are seen. We could see it in writing. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 16 says this Honor your father and your mother as the Lord has commanded you, so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. It's right there. It's right there. So, how is it that my heart is going to see? God in this moment? How will God reveal himself in this moment where I am, uh, I am giving way to the fact that he is Lord, but I'm asking him, what is it? What are you doing here? Are you dishonoring your mother? What's happening here? And I think our way forward 
can be seen in this last sentence, whoever does God's will. Whoever does God's will. I think if we actually go to the Ten Commandments, we can start to see, if we lift our eyes to the horizons of the passage, we can start to see the heart of God on display in a way that is actually also on display when Jesus responds to his parents, his mother in this way. When we lift our eyes to the passage of the Ten Commandments, we realize that it's surrounded by some things that are worth our attention. One thing that's worth our attention is that this is the fifth commandment, to honor your mother and father. The first five, the first table, has traditionally been understood by the church as a way to love God. This is how to love the Lord your God, these five commandments. And then because you love the Lord your God, the next five come along that help you to understand how to love your neighbor. One reason that the church is thought this way is because of the context of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments in Exodus come in Exodus chapter 20. That is to say, after the Exodus. What we're seeing actually is this movement. In Exodus chapter 4, God says to Pharaoh, let my child go so that my child can worship me in the desert. And then when we get to Exodus chapter 20 and in Deuteronomy chapter 5, we see the Ten Commandments, we see the pronouns being used in Hebrew, and they're actually personal pronouns. They are addressed to the child of God. This is what it will mean to be the child of God. This is what it will mean to love the Lord our God. And because we love the Lord our God, we will love those that are made in his image, our neighbors. So we start to see this context gather steam. We realize that this commandment is in the context of of a deep relationship to God our Father. We honor our parents because we honor the parents, God our Father. And another way to lift our eyes to the horizon of this passage and start to see what Jesus is on about when he says, those who do the will of my Father, who obey his commandments, that's my family, is is to look at the the verses just immediately before the, the commandment to honor our father and our mother. The fourth commandment is the commandment of the Sabbath. It says, in light of the fact that I have given you rest, in light of the fact that I have brought you out of Egypt, you should now celebrate that in the Sabbath and also always provide Sabbath for others. Look at this, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. It seems Jesus is tapping into this set of commandments in his response to his family and even to the teachers of the law. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Here's what I think is happening in this moment in in Mark chapter 3. Jesus is providing Sabbath rest for people who maybe had never truly experienced it in their lives. The, The sick, the hungry, the poor. 
And the teachers of the law and even Jesus' family are now standing in the way. They are standing in the way of true Sabbath rest. They have heard of the Sabbath. They, they, have, they have seen but not perceived. They have ears to hear, but they're not listening. That's a false kind of Christianity. If we ever stand against those that Jesus stands with, that's a false kind of Christianity. That's a kind of hearing without listening. Uh, that's, a, that's a problem. That's living outside of the relationship of father and child that we have with God. What Jesus is doing in this passage, in Mark chapter 3, is he's giving his allegiance to the Father. He's giving his allegiance to God above everything else so that it will include everything else. I want to say that again. He's giving his allegiance to God the Father above everything else so that it will include everything else. He sought first the kingdom. He said, my reputation is not of any consequence to me. These people, these are the ones that matter. These who are poor, these who are hungry, these people who are sick. And, and I will, in allegiance to God the Father, in obedience to God the Father, go to them, even if it costs me. Ultimately, it would cost him everything. In the book of John, chapter 11, the disciple John says it this way, Jesus would then full, show them the full extent of his love. The full extent of his love is that it was willing, he was willing to have it cost him everything. His allegiance is above everything else in God the Father. Even willing to have this moment that seems tense to me. I myself would have given into a sort of false unity, I'm sure of it. I myself would have uh, given into a sort of false peace, but Jesus draws our attention to this fact that brokenness begins in separating hearing from God and doing what God asks. Brokenness begins there. You can see it in the garden, what has happened. Adam and Eve have heard, and then they have separated it from doing. In fact, this is a strong theme, that false Christianity separates hearing from God and doing. It's a strong theme. We can see it right after the Ten Commandments. When God says, here, I've given you these commandments, now what? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, is a very famous prayer. For, for Jewish people, for the, for the ancient Jewish people, they would have said this prayer every morning and every evening. It's called the great Shema. The word Shema means to hear. But it has a range that we need to be aware of, lest we fall into the trap of the teachers of the law or even... Jesus' biological family here. The great Shema, when it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your hearts, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. The commandments are the Ten Commandments. It's right after the Ten Commandments that he says this. And the word hear, the word Shema, doesn't just mean let the sound waves hit your ears. In the Hebrew, there is no difference between hearing and doing. There is no difference. They are two sides of the same coin. We, we have English efforts at this, right? 
we tell our children, you're not listening. And they're like, what are you talking about? The sound hit my ears quite easy. It was natural for me to have heard what you had to say. We, we say, you're not listening. Did you hear me? Right? The reason we ask is because we don't see them doing. Right? The reason we ask is the same reason that in the Hebrew there's two sides of the same coin. To hear and to do are the two sides of the same coin. Hear, O Israel. But like I said, what we see in Scripture is that brokenness begins when we separate hearing from doing. But we can't separate it either way. There are those in the history of the church who have sought to hear from God and never sought to do anything about it. It's no wonder Bonhoeffer wants a new kind of monasticism because there were monastics who were quite happy to hear from God but had isolated themselves to the, to the degree that you wonder, what were they then doing? They were meant to be a spring of life flowing outward for the people of God, and maybe they were more like a stopped-up, stagnant pool. And there are people in our history who have sought to do, but never really bothered to listen. This leads to all kinds of heresy. It leads to, I think, actually the teachers of the law. What were they obsessed with doing the, the letter of the law, but they had failed to hear. The Lord of the universe walked past in their purview, and they said, there, there goes evil, right? John the Baptist looked at Jesus and said, there goes the Lamb of God. Jesus walks past the teachers of the law, and they say, there goes Beelzebub. They had been doing, but not bothering to listen. We cannot, we must not separate listening and doing. The very Hebrew that God inspires his people to leverage implores us to marry listening and doing, right? As, as we see God uh, call his people back to him when they fail to marry together hearing and doing, we can see it all over the place, like in Isaiah 58. Talking about the Sabbath again, we see that the people of God have heard about the Sabbath, but they haven't married it to doing. Here's what it says. They, they cry out to God. They say, why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, this is the Isaiah, uh, prophet Isaiah saying this, yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. You exploit your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife, striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. When I hear that verse, I think of the Duomo. I think of the paterfamilias of Florence doing war against one another in the very corridors of the cathedral in Florence, where they separated hearing from doing, and on the Sabbath day, as they understood it, they went to quarreling and strife. They struck each other with wicked fists. They had separated in those moments, hearing and doing. Here's what uh, the prophet Isaiah goes on to remind the people of God, inspired by God to say, no, 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 here's what Sabbath looks like. It sounds actually an awful lot like the passage that Alicia read during worship, where we see from Micah that what the Lord requires from us is to, to walk with him, to love mercy, and to do justice. Here's what it says. 
It is, is it not the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie, untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? This, this passage puts on display what it will mean to hear from God to hear from God about Sabbath, and then to live it out joyfully. To, to let Sabbath spill over to those around us. To, to let Sabbath reach far into the margins of society and gather them in like Jesus does. What had Jesus done in Mark chapter 2 on the Sabbath? He had taken the man from the margins of the community and brought him to the center and he had healed him. What was Jesus doing when he gathered with the poor? He was letting Sabbath spill over. Because Jesus never failed to marry hearing and doing when it comes to his life in obedience to the Father. He never once failed. He never once separated hearing and doing. We need to join him in this. And I, I suppose it might get messy. Uh, the, the Gospels prove that it might get messy. But they also prove that the messiness of following Jesus is better than the orderliness of empire and religious establishment. The messiness of following Jesus, of saying, I have heard from you, now I'm going to follow you, is a far cry better than the orderliness of the teachers of the law. Of those who will have to say to the people around them, you will have to earn your rest. There, there's, this, there's this history of two visions that we can see in Scripture. There's the vision of, of God seen in the Ten Commandments that says, I provide you rest so that you can join me in my work. And then there's the empire of Egypt and Babylon who says, if you do this work, if you fulfill this quota that I give you, then maybe I'll give you rest. It is flipped on its head, and it's why we will say this. We must start with listening. When we want to marry together listening and doing as the great Shema and all throughout Scripture implores us to do, we must start with listening. It always starts with listening. Think about the first moments of Adam and Eve. Think about their first breath, the breath of God in them. What happened first for them? They heard from God. God gave them a vision. He, he said, you get to join me in, in filling this earth. And then think about what happens next. In Genesis chapter 1, mankind is created on day 6. What's day 7? It's rest. It begins with rest. It begins with hearing from God. It must always begin with hearing from God, with God's presence. That's actually seen in the very subtle way in Genesis chapter 1 where we realize that the Hebrew author has been inspired to say it was evening and morning the first day. It was evening and morning the second day. Well, I think my day begins in the morning. What about you? No, no, no. For those who seek to listen to God, it begins with the rest that he provides. And then it moves forward into the work we can joyfully join him in. It must begin with listening. It must begin with listening. But of course, we have to ask ourselves then, how will we listen? How will we listen? 
Well, one other thing about the great Shema and the word Shema is that the, the lexical range of it actually just means pay attention. What if we paid considered attention, considered attention uh, in the everyday moments? What if we thought every moment was an opportunity to hear from God? There are people whose lives were changed, altered, entirely spun around by the mere listening for God in their every moment. As they, as they believed that God would join them in their everyday moment and speak to them. So we ought to pay attention. But I also think about how the way that we are created mind, body, and soul. I think we can listen, mind, body, and soul. I think we can give our whole selves to listening. I'm tempted to say, okay, mind, let's study. But I, I back off of that. What if instead we just filled our minds with the words of God? Psalm 8 says that God's mind is full of us. What if our minds were full of him? What if, like Paul implored us, we said, whatever's good, whatever's true, whatever's noble, I'm going to think about those things. What if we filled our minds with the, with the words of God, paying considered attention to the fact that he still speaks? Body. What if we set up a rhythm like the great Shema suggests that says, my rhythm will begin with prayer and end with prayer? And what if, like Paul, we breathed prayers? And, and, and what if we walked uh, uh, our prayers out one step at a time, honestly crying out to God and then listening for his voice in return? What if we, what if we were active in our prayer, one foot in front of the other, knowing that there is one who went before us and we can and must follow in his footsteps? What if, what if our bodies reflected the posture of humility that it comes to say, you are father and I am child. Even in worship, what if that sometimes meant kneeling? I think it will often mean raising one's hands. But what if our bodies reflected our deepest desires to hear from him? There can be no greater joy. And soul. We're running short on time, so let me just say this. In terms of soul, I think scripture wants us to confront ourselves as often as possible with that which is beautiful. Confront yourself with beauty. Ultimately, beauty points to that which is beautiful, that is God. Confront yourself with beauty. Go to an art museum and think, this artist, as they put paint on paper, were reflecting the creative heart of my God. Go for a walk in the woods and be reminded that God called it good. Confront yourself as often as possible. Be drawn into worship by being confronted by beauty. This is how we will listen. We will pay attention, mind, body, and soul. It then begs the question, what will we do? If I were to say in one sentence, I would say, this is what we'll do what we're told. There is two sides to the coin of hearing. 
hearing and doing, two sides of the coin. When we hear from God, when we enjoy the presence of God, that which, what our, that which our soul needs most, that our soul is panting after, the psalmist says, when we hear from him, we must not separate it from doing. We'll do what we're told. We'll, we'll do this. We'll do what we were designed to do, and that's gardening. Isaiah 58, that says, you've been hearing but not doing when it comes to Sabbath, ends this way. It says, when you hear and then go on to do, you will be like a well-watered garden. When your Sabbath rest spills over for the margins of society and they can rest too, you will be like a gardener in a well-watered garden. Here's what it says. It's verse 11. The Lord will guide you always. He's with you. Listen. Pay attention. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. It's this that Jesus is drawing from in John chapter 4 when he's speaking to the woman at the well who was so thirsty. But now in the presence of God, she would be able to worship in spirit and truth and then be like a well-watered garden herself taking care of the great oak trees that God has planted that provide shade for our lives and and pulling up the weeds that would seek to choke out the marginalized in our society and instead join God who is the great gardener. What will we do? When we hear from God, we pay attention, mind, body, and soul, what we will do is what we're told. We'll join him joyfully in being gardeners of creation, walking with him in the cool of the evenings, finding our rest in him, and then join him in providing rest for others. That's what we will do. I think Bonhoeffer is right. Every generation will need to participate with the Spirit of God and, and, and join with God in restoring and renewing their calling, hearing from God and never separating it from doing. I think Bonhoeffer's right. And I think Nietzsche is wrong. Here's what Nietzsche has failed to consider. When he accused the cathedrals of Europe of merely being the tombs of God, he failed to consider that the tomb is empty. He forgot that our entire being is based on this fact. The tomb is empty. And the earth is full of people who are hearing from God and joining in and doing what the heart of God would do. The tomb is empty. The work is done. Our rest is here. Now we get to joyfully join him in that rest. This rest won't be inactivity. This rest will be considered attention to the voice of God and joyful joining him in the work. That's where our rest will be found. And it will result in others finding rest too. As Alicia plays, let's think about those things. What's one way this week we can pay considered attention? What's one way this week we can just add a rhythm of listening? It could be breathing prayers. It could be adding a walk. It could be fasting. When we're created mind, body, and soul, these things work together as we turn an ear towards heaven. And I'd ask you to think about this too. When we have heard from God, what will we do? When we have rested in his presence, 
What will it launch us into? That's what the teachers of the law and even Jesus' mother and brothers needed to hear. They needed to hear from Jesus and then join him in the work he was doing. So do we.